1446 B.C., something significant happened in the ancient world. It's recorded in our Bibles in Exodus. Uh, um, God delivered about two million Hebrew slaves from a very powerful nation. Um, God delivered the, 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 the people, the Hebrew people, the people that uh, were God's people in the Old Testament uh, from Egypt. And it was quite a scene as described in our Bible. Uh, there were flies and frogs and gnats and the killing of the firstborn. And uh, it, was, it was quite a, uh, quite, a, uh, quite a thing that happened. Most of you are familiar with that story that happened in 1446 B.C. We call it the Exodus. And we, uh, it was, I guess, the kind of, uh, kind of the, the, the capstone of the Exodus was whenever God parted the Red Sea and, uh, and, the, and the Hebrew people walked through on dry land. The sea was closed back up and the Egyptians were swept away. I am super, super excited to preach on the Ten Commandments because what happened next is that this group of Hebrew slaves that had been delivered, they were, re they were led to a mountain called Mount Sinai. And on that mountain, for the very first time, God spoke audibly to all of his people. And for the very first time in history, we see Scripture was written down. Now I know that we I know that we have portions of our Bibles that uh, record things that happened uh, before that time. For example, people believe that the Book of Job was uh, was was one of the oldest writings, or they believe that maybe Genesis was written down first. But for the very first time, as recorded in Scripture. We have the Ten Commandments that were written down. And I'm super excited to be preaching on the Ten Commandments because the Ten Commandments really form the basis of God's expectations for His people. When you think about what God requires of our character, when you think about the morals that God requires of us, when you think about God's spiritual obligations, and you really kind of boil it down to ten basic principles... That's what we have in the Ten Commandments. It's the very foundation of commands that God has that was, that was binding on His people back then, that are binding upon us now, and that are going to be binding on God's people uh, all the way until Jesus comes back. And here they are. You, you probably have uh, maybe uh, uh, or have at least seen a a framed list of the Ten Commandments. You used to find them pretty much in every courtroom all throughout the United States. You don't see that as much anymore. Uh, you used to see them in some school classrooms. Uh, how many of you How many of you remember a time whenever you would see them in school classrooms? You don't see them as much anymore. But here, here they are, the Ten Commandments. Now, be honest. How many of you could quote them by heart? Anybody quote them by heart? Anybody can quote them by heart in order? Uh, I've, I've got to. I've got to do that. I said. I said last week that I was going to do that. I need. I need to do that. I have to have. Uh, I have to have them up on the screen or on the printed uh, page in front of me in order for me to remember all of them in order. I can get close. I, I get. Uh, I get sidetracked about six or seven. But here they are. You shall have no other gods before me. This this commandment basically tells us who we should worship. The second commandment says you shall not for your, make for yourself a carved image. This commandment basically tells us how we are to worship, or rather, how we're not to worship. Commandment three, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. We could say this has to do with our words of worship, kind of a, a reverence of speech that we're supposed to have for God. 
Commandment four, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. This speaks about a day of worship. But really what we see in the Sabbath command has, uh, also says a lot about work and how much, how much work we're supposed to do and also rest, how we're supposed to have a rhythm of work and rest and that it's supposed to involve worship. We see in uh, a Camp Commandment 5, honor your father and mother. We could just call this family worship or a foundation for family worship. This is, uh, uh, this, this commandment, honor your father and mother, this is God's primary principle for parenting. It is also the only command in Scripture that is given directly to children. But all that we do in parenting has to flow out of this. Commandment 6, you shall, not, uh, you shall not murder. This is more than just a respect for life. This has to do with us having inner peace and rejecting anger and negative emotions. Uh, we see this as in the Sermon on the Mount whenever Jesus talked about this. Commandment 7, uh, you shall not commit adultery. This is a basic principle of marriage uh, that we're supposed to, supposed to be faithful and committed to our spouse's for life. You shall not steal. Commandment number eight. This is a core principle of honesty and integrity that we're to reject greed, that we're to embrace hard work, turn away from laziness, and that we're to be generous, open-handed people, not people that take what doesn't belong to us. Commandment nine, you shall not bear false witness. When I think about this commandment, I think about how we're just, we're supposed to talk like Jesus, that we're supposed to have pure speech, uh, uh, truthful speech about others, that not only are we supposed to reject lying, but also gossip and slander, and I would even say exaggeration. Man, coming from a preacher, that's, that's really something, isn't it? A commandment 10, you shall not covet. This is about living a life of contentment instead of a life of materialism. So, as you can see, uh, just uh, at, at plain view, there are, there's really a lot here to the Ten Commandments. When we're not just, we don't just look at what the Bible says we shouldn't do, but we think about how we sh what we should do in place of these things. And then when you compare it to what Jesus says in Sermon on the Mount, there's just a lot that we're going to be able to study over the next 10 weeks. And these commandments, they are very countercultural. And they were extremely countercultural in 1446 BC whenever they were given, but they're pretty countercultural in our day as well. And really everything flows out of these first two commandments. These first two commandments, if you don't have these two, you can forget about the rest. The, the, the rest really won't matter. Without proper worship, nothing else is going to be calibrated like it needs to be. And, and, and really, our Christianity rises and falls on whether or not we properly worship and whether or not we are properly following these first two basic core commands. And that's what we're going to look at over the next two weeks. I really have kind of a, a part one and a part two series. Today, part one, uh, worship God only. And we're going to read the first two commands. Stand with me, if you don't mind, as we just show attention and reverence to God's Word as we look at Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 1. Look at this. And God spoke all these words. I love that. 
It's easy to just kind of, kind of go past that. It says, and God spoke all these words. Can you imagine being in a company of about two million former slaves in the wilderness, hearing these commands thundering from a mountain as God spoke these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth below or that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God." visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commands. Father, today I pray that in our hearts that we would love you. God, we know that whenever we look at your law, it's not just something that you want us to keep on the outside. Lord, you care so much more than just about appearances, like the Pharisees who were just whitewashed tombs. Lord, you, you want to have truth in the inner parts. And so, Lord, that's what we pray. I pray, God, that we would love you at our core. Lord, that's really what these commandments are all about. God, that's what worship is all about. Lord, help us to do that today. And we offer this prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. There is no more important moral, spiritual, or lifestyle command than to worship. I mean, that really is, when you really, when you really take Christianity at its core, and you really boil down God's expectations of us, He wants us to be worshipers. Not just worshipers that sit in a pews on Sunday mornings. Obviously, that's part of the obligation. We're going we're gonna to talk about that whenever we get to remember the Sabbath day. But it's so much more than that. And it's even more than a lifestyle worship. We talk about worship a lot. We look at, you know, that passage in Romans that says that, you know, your reasonable service, don't be conformed, uh, you know, to the image of the world, but be transformed uh, into the image of God's Son. Worship is even, it's even, even bigger than a lifestyle. Worship, is, worship is, is, is something that has to be at the core of who we are. Worship is going to be something, unlike other Christian activities, that is going to last all the way through eternity. There's going to come a time in eternity that it will no longer be necessary for you to hear someone preach. Don't say amen to that. Don't you do it. I caught you before you said it. Uh, there will come a time in eternity where you won't be required to go on a mission trip anymore. You won't need to do that. You will need to share your faith. There are certain Christian activities that are not going to carry into eternity that we just, we're just doing right now. But when it comes to worship, when it comes to loving God in our heart, and I also believe singing and declaring God's praises to Him, that is something that is going to last forever. You are going to do that forever. You are going to love the Lord and worship Him forever. If that doesn't excite you, there's something wrong. You're looking at heaven in a completely wrong way 
If the idea of worshiping him forever in, in some kind of way, uh, some kind of way bothers you. But let's, I wouldn't want to answer the questions that we're going to look at for the next, for, for this Sunday and next Sunday is who we worship, how we worship, and why we worship. Those are really the three core questions that we're going to kind of explore together. Uh, who we worship, how we worship, and why we worship. I, 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 want, I want to start with the why. This may be a little bit backwards, uh, but it really kind of feeds into the, into the who. We worship God only because He saved us. Because He saved us. I bet as you studied the Ten Commandments, you have easily just kind of brushed past uh, this verse, uh, verse 1 and verse 2. Uh, verse 1 being that God spoke audibly these commands to all the people. It's easy to skip past that verse. And then this verse right here basically says what God did for them. The reason that God's telling them to worship Him is because He did something for them. He did something amazing for them. Has God done something amazing for you? He has for me. 31 years ago, he delivered me from slavery. He didn't deliver me from a nation. I wasn't having to gather straw. I wasn't having to make bricks like the ancient Hebrews had to, had to do with Pharaoh. I was in a much worse slavery at that time. I was in slavery to drugs and alcohol and all the bad things that the world has to offer. But God saved me. He took me away from all of that. You know, you know, he did the same for you, even if you were saved whenever you were five years old, if before you even were able to give full expression to your sinful nature. God delivered you into the same way. He saved you. Isn't that why you worship him? Isn't, isn't that at the core of why you praise him and why you love him? Because he saved you. You know, this past week, I was sitting, I was thinking about my life. And I was thinking about how great my life is, to be quite honest. I was thinking about how, man, how, how blessed I am to just to be just to be a preacher. It's a blessing. And to be able to do it in a place like Stephen Street is just absolutely amazing. I was thinking about Cookville and how blessed I am to live in a place like Cookville. I was thinking about my family, my wife. How blessed I am to be married by someone who could be so patient with someone like me. I was thinking about my children and how much I love my children and just, just how blessed I am. And even, y'all can laugh if you want to, just little things. Like, I'm thankful. I love my dogs. I do. My kids love my dogs. I love my, I lo I love my truck. I love my house. I just, I have, I have so much to be thankful for. But let me tell you something. The reason that I worship is not because God has given me a great life. That's not why I worship. I worship because He saved me at the very core. That's why we're worshiping. Listen, let me, let me tell you something. Let me get off script for a minute. If, you, if your worship is contingent upon your life being blessed, you're not worshiping for the right reasons. You, you're just not. If you're worshiping God because he gave you a good job and, oh, you're so blessed. Thank you, Lord. Or you're only worshiping because you're just thankful for your family. You're thankful for, for what God. If that is the only reason that you're worshiping, you are worshiping for the wrong reasons. We worship God because he saved us and because he delivered us. Do you know that Satan 
wants you to worship anyone and anything except God. He'll settle for you being moral. He'll settle for you being religious. He'll settle for you being a good person and a responsible citizen. He will settle for that all day long as long as somebody else or something else is supreme in your life except for him. He will, be, he will be content, Satan will be content for you to have someone other than God to be supreme, for you to worship somebody else or something else other than him. And so the, so the question is, how do we worship properly? What's the proper way to worship? You know, to answer that question, it lends itself towards style. Does it not, Andy? Like, what's the, what's the proper way to worship? Oh, we should, have a, we, should have our, we should have our stage set up right. Or we should do it at a certain time or a certain day. Or no, the, the proper way to worship, you know, you got to dress a certain way. Or you got to sing the right songs. Or you got to have the, the right style communicator. Can I tell you today that when it comes to how we worship, I believe that how we worship should go so, and I'm not saying those things are not important, I'm saying that how we worship should be so much larger than that, and you say, oh, well, lifestyle, right? We worship, no, I mean even bigger than that. I want to give you a word that I believe encapsulates the first commandment and how we obey it. I want to give you a word that, that I believe properly articulates how we worship properly. And here it is. We worship God only by acknowledging his supremacy. Supremacy. If God doesn't have supremacy in your life, it doesn't matter how many times you show up at church. It doesn't matter the style on the stage. Listen. It doesn't even matter if you're living a moral life. It doesn't matter. If God is not supreme in your life, if he's not number one. So here's what this command says. This command says, you shall have no other gods before me. Notice how God's on the screen and in my Bible and probably in your Bible, God's has like a, a little g. These are not real gods. These are, these are false gods, all right? Um, we are to worship God and God alone because we don't believe that there are any other gods that exist. This is called monotheism. The opposite of that is polytheism. All right, this is ancient civilization, Western Civ, 101, ninth grade level ancient history. A monotheism, the belief in one God, polytheism, the belief in many gods. You learned this probably in grade school, at least in high school, certainly in college. But let me tell you what maybe some of your professors and teachers didn't tell you unless they were Christian or maybe they didn't know. Monotheism originates exclusively from the Old Testament. That's where it comes from. It, it, came, it came from, um, from our Judeo-Christian roots. That's where it originated. It originated in the book of Exodus. It originated with this command that we are to worship only one God, and he is the only God that exists. Um, this was a radical belief in ancient times. In ancient times, to believe this, to say you're not supposed to have any other gods, that you're supposed to just have one God, and that's, but that's what God says. Don't have any other gods before me. Now, you might be stumped by that phrase. 
You, you might think, well, wait a minute, you, you shall have no other, maybe, maybe it should say, you should have no other gods except me. I want you to know that that's really practically what it says, but I like the way that God said it because this is not acknowledging the existence of other deities. This is acknowledging our capacity to worship non-existent or false things. That's, what, that's basically what this, this means, is that there's no other God that exists. There's only one God, but we have the capacity to worship all of these other things. And so this is where our faith begins. This is where the commandment begins, monotheism. How many of you believe in monotheism? You know what? I would dare say there's probably not anybody here that doesn't believe in monotheism. Otherwise, you, I mean, you wouldn't be in a Christian church unless you're curious and you're saying, how, I, I, wonder what, I wonder what all those crazy people believe. Let's go see what all those, uh, all those Christians are like. But most of us believe in monotheism. Does that mean that God is supreme in your life? Just because you believe that there's one supreme God, does that mean that you're following this commandment? To not have any gods before Him? You see, it's not what we believe that, necessary, that, that necessarily speaks uh, uh, the most about our spiritual life. It's not, it's not just what we believe, but it's who or what has supremacy. That's how I identify your worship and whether or not you're a true worshiper. To not see if you can properly articulate your theology, whether it be about mono, monotheism or anything else. The real question is who or what is supreme in your life. That's, that's, what, that's what shapes your worship. Do you know you can believe in monotheism, but still practice polytheism by placing other things in your life more supreme than God? What are some people or activities or things in your life that have become so big and so primary in your life that they're bigger than God? Do you have things in your life that are bigger than God? Do you have things in your life that capture more of your effort and energy and love and devotion than God? Here's some possible idols. I don't know. You pray about it. That first one stings a little bit, doesn't it, all you SEC fans? You know, all you hardcore parents that, uh, that think that, that your kids are you know, going to be the starting, starting quarterback for UT one day? Oh, here's mine. Hobbies. Oh, man, I'm a hobby guy. I love my hobbies. What about this? How about food? I, I see some of your Facebook feeds where you have post after post about plate after plate and food after food. I see you out there. It makes me hungry. Sex and beauty, money. Man, that's a big one. Jesus, Jesus talked about that, didn't he? The Scripture even says that money is the root of all kinds of evil. Success. How many of you want to do well? How many of you want to achieve goals, happiness, drugs, alcohol, affirmation? Here's another one, media, politics. It amazes me how sometimes it's hard to have a spiritual conversation with Christians. Oh, but it's easy to talk about politics. Man, if you want to get somebody blabbering, just bring up politics. You start trying to talk about the atonement, and they're like, uh, huh? You know, even family can be prioritized 
above God? I think that's why Jesus says, and, and of course, this requires some, requires some explanation, kids. Um, but Jesus said, unless you hate father and mother and, and give up your life, he's not saying literally hate them. He's saying nothing should be more important, not even family. Remember the guy who made the excuse and Jesus said, hey, come follow me. And he goes, oh, I, I, I got to go bury my father. And Jesus didn't take that excuse. So the other guy said, oh, wait a minute. I just, I just got married. I, I, I can't. And that excuse wasn't good either. You know, you could even put your religion above God. Our hearts are, our hearts are just little idol factories. Because see, idolatry exists. Not, you see, not all of these things are bad. But we can still make an idol out of them when we give them supremacy because idolatry lies in our heart. It's, it's not necessarily the thing that's worship that's the idol as much as we make it an idol whenever we begin to give it supremacy, its improper place in our life. And so what God would say, what God has says, said is don't, don't make him jealous Exodus chapter 20, verse 5, God gives these two commands. He says, don't have any other gods before me and don't make a, an, an image. And he says, don't do that. Don't bow down to them. Don't serve them. And he says, listen, don't do that because I'm jealous. When we see that word jealousy and we think, now, wait a minute. We normally look at that as a negative, like God being jealous. I, I think there is a godly jealousy that God can have over us if we give anything in our life a supremacy. You know, you feel the same way about certain things in your life, right? You might feel the same way about your spouse. And you have every right to, as long as you're not, you know, as long as you're not weird about it, right? There's, it can go too far. But there's a certain jealousy that we should be able to have over our spouse. Uh, several weeks ago, I had a dream, I had a dream that there was someone that was flirting with my wife, okay? It was more of a nightmare rather than a dream. And the bad part, here's the, here's the bad part of the dream. The bad part of the dream is that, and, and this is not a person known to me, the bad part of the dream is that every time the person's name was mentioned, Kelly would kind of... <laughs> I mean, like... I woke up, I was mad. I wasn't mad at her, I was mad at the other guy. I was like, where's he at? Messing with my wife. I have, I have every right to be jealous over the person that has committed their life to me. And there's other things. We might have certain possessions that, hey, I have certain rights over this, and for you to steal it or abuse it, there's, there's certain jealousy that we can have in this life that's a godly jealousy. And God would say, if there's anything more supreme in your life, anything that is bigger than God in your life, it can be a potential idol. And so what do we do? What do we do, whether it be some of these things that I put on the screen, but the possibilities are endless. You can make an idol out of anything. All you have to do is elevate it in importance over God. And um, what do we do whenever we realize that there's something that has captured more of our time, something that has captured more of our energy, something that has captured more of our thoughts? There's something bigger in our life besides God that has become supreme. What do we do? How do we worship God only in the midst of that? And here's, here's how we do it. We worship God only 
through making sacrifices. We offer sacrifices. Sacrifices, animal sacrifices, is how worship began in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we see the perfect sacrifice that was offered, Jesus on the cross. And then we see the continual commands that we have in Scripture that we are to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. And of course, we see the commands that Jesus says that we have to hate our own life, take up our cross, follow him, uh, reject ourselves, and things like that. In the ancient world, every single human being on earth was polytheistic, every single one of them, and they all had little statues, big statues made of wood, made of stone, something that resembled their god or their gods that they worshiped. All of them had that. God said, no, you cannot do that. You cannot have a, a, an eye, a, a, a wood or, or carved anything that represents a false god, and you can't also can't do anything like that that would represent me. That's what the second commandment, and we'll talk about that next week. You, you can't do that. God said, sacrifice that, take that out of your life. There are two ways that we make sacrifices to God. One way is whenever we offer ourselves or something that we have to God. We say, Lord, I'm going to sacrifice this. I'm going to give this over to you. That's one way we sacrifice. Another way we sacrifice is to reject something, turn away from something, and get something out of our life. That's what this was about. That, that's what this command was about. Give that up. You can never do that. I mean, can you imagine the culture that these people had come out of in Egypt? We tra- uh, me and my family traveled to Egypt uh, several years ago. And I mean, they have gods everywhere on everything. I mean, it just, just all over the place. They worship every. Can you imagine the culture that they came out of? God said, nope, can't do that. You have to sacrifice that. That's how sacrifice works. And it still works that way. God may come to you and say, that's become too big in your life. You've made it supreme, so I want you to give it to me. Or God may say, that's become too big and too supreme in your life. I want you to give it up for me. Both of those involve sacrifice where we say, yes, I'll either give it to you or I'll reject it. I will give it up for you. This is the basis of our relationship with Christ. We acknowledge God's supremacy by sacrificing to him upon request. This is what Abraham did with Isaac. God promised Isaac, God gave him Isaac, and then it almost as if Isaac became more important in Abraham's life than God. And so God said, go sacrifice him. And of course, you know the story in Genesis 22, God provided a substitute sacrifice which pictured Christ. God, uh, the, 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 the same thing happened with the early disciples. What did they do? They left their nets. They left every, the Bible says they left everything, and they followed him. They left tax collector's booths. They left nets. They left their life behind, and they followed Jesus. You did this as well. 
However long ago it was for you, just like we sang that glorious day when you ran out of that grave, this is what happened in your life. In that moment, you were a pure worshiper of God. You called upon the name of Jesus, you stood at the foot of cross, and you said, nothing do I bring. Lord, I give everything up for you. My whole life is surrendered to you. And that's how you got saved. You got saved through your initial act of worship that originated from your heart, even though you were a sinner at the time. And a refusal to sacrifice upon request is idolatry. Let me ask you this. What is it in your life that you hope that God would never ask you to sacrifice? What is it in your life that you would say, I really hope God never says, give that over to me or give that up for me? What is it in your life that you would say, Mm, I don't know. You see, that's how you recognize an idol. You test it. When, 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 if you have an idol in your life, if it's threatened, and you're like a, you're like a gnarling dog over a bone, you know, God kind of reaches for it and says, no, that's become too big in your life. That's become more supreme than me in your life. And you just become defensive, and you just kind of tense up. That could be an indicator that it's an idol in your life. You see, like I said before, idolatry is a matter of the heart. And that's what God cares about. And we worship God only by loving Him properly from the heart. This is my last point. And I want to show you something. Y'all, I have to tell you. I never saw this in God's Word until this past week. I I just never put two and two together. You had God the Father speak from a mountain, saying, those who love me and keep my commandments. And you had God the Son incarnate basically say the same thing the night he was arrested and the night before he was crucified when he said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. I, n- I, never, I never saw that in God's word until this past week. I love it when I, I, love it when I learn something new. I mean, whether it's, whether it's God the Father speaking from a mountain or God the Son speaking to his disciples or God the Holy Spirit inside of you speaking to you saying, love me, love me supremely. Keep my commandments, even if you have to sacrifice. Keep my commandments. Do you know this is the best thing for you? You you realize that worshiping God only, making Him supreme in your life, making sacrifices out of your life, this is the best thing for you. This This is what God desires for us. Do you know the children of Israel, you know they violated the first and the second commandment almost immediately after they had, they had received it. They hadn't even left Mount Sinai yet before they, they crafted a golden calf and they danced around it. Man, have you ever, have you ever, just, made a, you ever just made a mistake that you just wish you could take back? Sometimes I put myself in, this, in the same place as these Israelites. I, I look at them and I think, y'all were just... Y'all were just stupid. I mean, how could you do that? God the Father thunders from the mountain and, and gives you the commandments. 
And then hardly a month later, you're violating them. And they paid for it. I I think that's happened to me more. I, I, I look at them, and I just have to look in the mirror. I mean, I've done the same things. I put things in, I've made things in my life more supreme than God. Things that captured more energy, more attention, more money, more time, more effort, more love than God. I, I've, I catch myself doing it all the time. You do too. If you pay any, if you pay close attention to your spiritual life, you'll find it too. I find myself protecting those things. Those idols gnarling like a dog. No, I don't want to give them up. We do them all the time. We're, we're, we're the same as them. And when that happens in my life, when that realization happens in my life, something else happens. The Spirit of God just reminds me that Jesus died for me. The Spirit of the Lord just reminds me that Christ paid for all of my failings. And He covered all my sin. And it just returns me to my love for Him. Every time I mess up and God shows me that Christ paid for my sin, all it does, it doesn't make me want to go sin more. It just makes me want to love God with all my heart and with all my soul and to follow his commands. So as we move into a time of response, like we do every week, I just ask you to pray about your own spiritual life. I just, I just want to ask you, I, mean, I want you to ask yourself this question. I want you to pray about this. Do you love the Lord? I mean, do you love him first? Is, is he first in your life? Is there something in your life that is just bigger than God? It's just glaring. It's just glaringly bigger than God in your life. And I'm not, I'm not talking about your beliefs. I know we're all, we're, we're all monotheists. We all believe that God is supreme. But is there something in your life that is more supreme than God? Would you, would you, would you pray about that? Would you pray about Maybe making a sacrifice today. You know, some sacrifices, you know, we, we give up to the Lord and we give over to the Lord. But some sacrifices we make in our heart. And only God can see those sacrifices. You know, in ancient Israel, they would walk into a church. No, excuse me. They would walk into the temple and they would sacrifice an animal. And they would sprinkle the blood everywhere. And all the priests would see it and all the people would see it. And it would be obvious that a sacrifice was being made. But the way that we do now is you, you come walking into the church and you're dragging around all those idols in your heart. They're just, they're just everywhere in your life. And maybe no one can see them. Maybe they can. Maybe no one can see them. But you know, they're, they're, you know that they're there. They're on your mind. They're on your heart. And the way that we make sacrifices is we just go to the Lord in prayer. We go behind the curtain. The veil has been torn. No longer do we bring the blood of animals and bulls and goats, but the blood of Christ has gone before us. And now we, we go behind the veil. We go into the Holy of Holies. And we offer prayer directly to God. We don't need a high priest to do it for us anymore. We go directly to God's throne, and we make those sacrifices, and we do it in our heart. It's a spiritual thing that you do in prayer. And maybe you need to go behind the veil today. You need to enter into the Holy of Holies. You need to pray to the Lord. And you need to make a sacrifice today. You need to say, God, there's just some things in my life that are just, they're just getting too big. They're becoming supreme. And God, I just want to sacrifice them to you because I love you and because you saved me. He is worthy of our praise because he saved us. And we love him. And we want him to be first. 
And we're willing to sacrifice anything, anything, in order to follow this very basic and first commandment to have no other gods before Him. If you've never come to know Christ today, you have never truly worshipped. And there's the first act of worship that you have when you, when you pray to receive Christ. It's like, a, it's like an initial act of worship where you follow this very first command. Where you say, God, you're supreme. I surrender all to you. I give up everything for you. I believe in Jesus and I call upon him to be saved. This can be an act of worship that you can have privately in your seat as you pray to God. And I want to give you an opportunity to do that as the rest of us just as Christians, just pray about those things that maybe, maybe have gotten in the way of us being godly. So let's bow our heads and let's close our eyes.